The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Discover a positive path for spiritual living. Welcome to Voices of Unity with Rev. Ellen Debenport. Hello again. This is Voices of Unity. I'm Ellen Debenport. This is a show that invites different new thought leaders to share their wisdom and expertise to help you dive deep into spiritual topics so you can discover new ideas and practices that will enhance your life. I'm sort of a host and MC for this show. Our, our guests on Voices of Unity are sometimes Unity ministers, sometimes others, but they're sharing something special they've learned, a body of work. So they come and stay for several weeks at a time so we can explore their areas of special interest. And sometimes it's specific to unity and sometimes more generally related to spiritual practice. But our current series is Hardcore Unity, and I am loving it. (laughs) Kelly Isola, Reverend Kelly Isola, is back to talk some more about Myrtle Fillmore, our co-founder. Hey, Kelly. Hey. Kelly is live with me here in the studio on the sixth floor of the tower at Unity Village. And if you're listening live on April 30th, 2019, we'd love for you to call in with questions or comments and tell us what you think about Myrtle. So, Kelly, last week was our first show, and it has completely shifted my view of Myrtle and Charles. Excellent. Well, I knew that she was had been to college, which was unusual in her time, and she had read a lot. I didn't quite get that he was following her, that she was the leader, because, you know, I bought into the myth that Charles was the intellectual and Myrtle just prayed all the time. Uh, she was devotional. She was heart. He was head. I mean, you've heard that a lot, right? Yes. Tur- turns out <laughs> she was both yeah. heart and head, and he was running on his tiptoes to keep up, I think. I think sometimes he absolutely was, and uh, which, um, and maybe because I'm a, a woman and, you know, a clergy and uh, just my own personal relationship with Myrtle, I think there were definitely times he was running to, to catch up, which... I believe is in part, and this is my own educated guess, why he also was a voracious reader. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not just trying to keep up spiritual practice-wise, and because he did watch Myrtle, you know, do her own prayer and meditation and healing practices, and he watched for a couple, two, three years and said, well, maybe I'll try this out. Right. And um, because he saw within those couple years, he saw some shifts, you know, within her. But I also think it applied to the, the intellectual aspirations and um, endeavors. Well, and props to him for falling in love with a woman who was nine years older, who had been to college because he didn't have much schooling, right? and who was very well read uh, in all sorts of religions and ideas. And I'm proud of him for being attracted to that he, in the 1880s. Yeah, he's... he. Uh, um, he was an entre- you know his energy and his his beingness was an entrepreneur mm-hmm. you know which is which is very you know creative and not that Myrtle wasn't creative but she was a teacher mm-hmm. and so I think in many ways they were you know a, a kind of a perfect fit 
um, in terms of, you know, energetically and, and in terms of even if you want to say masculine and feminine energy, not that Myrtle's, you know, feminine and Charles is masculine energy, but both of them engaging in masculine and feminine energy, but expressing in different ways. So tell the listeners how how you know so much about Myrtle. So how I have come to know Myrtle is um, it actually started back in the about 2002. Uh, like many people that visit churches or spiritual communities, uh, you kind of the door is kind of a revolving door. Mm-hmm. Um, you come and go and come and go and come and go. And I did that with Unity in Phoenix at Unity of Phoenix. And I would go for a few months and stop. And I did that for years. And then somewhere around 2002, I went and stopped revolving door. And one of my ministers was Reverend Leilani Burt, who who I think is um, not necessarily a reincarnation of Myrtle, but certainly embodies oh, quite a bit. Energy, doesn't of, she? Yes, energy of Myrtle. And I um, wanted my first volunteer position in a church was as a prayer chaplain, and I somehow I missed the piece of if you were going to be a prayer chaplain, you were going to be praying out loud with people. <laughs> so at chaplain camp, I'm, it occurred to me, but I kept going. And that was really my – because of uh, Reverend Leilani Burt's um, love for Myrtle and introduction and introducing and, you know, embodying some of that, that was my first introduction. And then – and that just kind of grew and then coming to seminary, you know, be checking more things out in the archives. And then about three years ago, I was very ill um, – was three years, three years, three weeks in the hospital. The middle week, I was in ICU. I was on life support. I was, I had a couple of near death experiences. I wasn't supposed to be here, and um, one of the near death experiences I had was actually with Myrtle, um, and it was just this. And there were other in the near death experiences. Sometimes people meet people, and um, whether you know them or not. And of course, I didn't know Myrtle, but it was just a short conversation. And the the first question was, "What are you going to do?" And I initially took that to mean, what are you going to do? Like, which realm are you going to choose? Mm-hmm. Do you want to stay here on Earth or do you want to come? Mm-hmm. And um, so I had to decide. And um, it was a really, believe it or not, it was a very hard decision because this life is hard yes. sometimes. So um, and then the question evolved into what are you going to do um, here? And um, and it was this rapid major shift in it was like 20 years of spiritual work and consciousness raising and about a minute and a half to what are you going to do like what are you willing to give your life to um which then prompted me to spend a lot of time in the archives just reading things she wrote that Mm -hmm. there is the Myrtle Fillmore collection that is online and you can read things that aren't published in books a lot of it is handwritten and she's a school teacher so it's very penmanship and it's hard on the eyes but um so just learning more about her from what she was people were writing in to ask and what she was responding with and you just learn to get to know someone and expand that little slice that you have from our two books that are published how to let god help you and myrtle fillmore's healing letters you know you get a slice of someone and nobody else None of us on earth are just sort of this one thing that you get out of a book or out of a biography, but a whole lot, a whole lot more. And it just kept feeding my wanting to know more yeah. about this woman because she, you know, in in 
many ways, you know, as a spiritual pioneer and a spiritual leader and and spiritual leader, you know, may not be like at the in the pulpit at the front of the church, you know, like mostly men have been, except in unity, it's mostly women, but just her pioneering efforts around prayer and healing and how to raise children and how to, you know, be in the community and how to care for each other, be in service. So, Aren't you the one who sent me Something from a letter in the archives where a woman had written Myrtle and said, your talk this morning was really dull. Yes. You should let your husband handle yes, that. Yes, yes. It was – I don't even know if it was a woman who sent it because it signed a friend. Oh, right. And I thought, yeah, you need new friends, Myrtle. <laughs> yeah, it was um, – someone wrote her and she – because she rarely did talks from the front of the room. That was pretty much Charles did that. And the person sent her a short note that said, you know, um, people were the in two rows in front of them. Someone, uh, people were sleeping and snoring while she was talking, and that the the service would be better served. You know that that time on Wednesday nights would be better served if she stuck to meditation with some music and the prayerful part and leave the talking to her husband. And in fact, her husband was sleeping behind her while she was speaking. And I thought, oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, a friend. Yeah, bless her heart. <laughs> but so I'm, I've really been looking forward to today because we're going to talk about Myrtle and the women's movement of her time. And I had no idea she was involved in anything regarding women. It seems to me what I've read in the books is about being a wife and mostly about being a mother. And I'm aware that she lived through women getting the vote in 1920. She died in 31, right? Mm -hmm. But I didn't know anything about anything else, so tell me about it. Yeah, there's – it's uh, – when you read letters um, that people write in, most of the – when you go through the archives, most of the letters that get written in are from women. Mm -hmm. um, and she responds. And she doesn't – uh, when you do, it's it's always a gold mine when you find a letter someone has written in and her response to the letter because we don't have the, we don't have a lot of those right. Like the whole book, Myrtle Fillmore's Healing Letters, is just her response. Mm -hmm. And when you can have the other half of the equation, it just adds a whole lot more to what she's saying and why she's saying it. So, in terms of what she was would have been present to in terms of the women's movement, you know, the, the 19th Amendment uh, for the U.S. giving the women the right to vote was passed in August of 1920. Um, so, uh, but before that, there was, um, the women's movement technically has its birth in um, 1937 at a women's convention in Seneca Falls, New mm -hmm. York. Right. And that was called, and it was called the women's movement, um, convention, women's movement convention. And uh, Frederick Douglass signed, you know, the Declaration of Sentiments. They mm -hmm. had this piece of paper of all the things that they were wanting. And um, so, and that just kind of was moving, uh, moving west. But at the same time, the state, the territories in the west, um, like Kansas, like Colorado, um, and further west, were already had already been long before 1920 had been giving women the right to vote. So when Myrtle comes along, she's not only does she go to Oberlin College, which um, also in uh, 1937 began to let women into college um, and 
take some of the same classes that the men and make a statement in their um, uh, their catalog. They actually, 1937, Oberlin College has a catalog, you know, of classes, and but makes a statement because it's the first year they're letting women in, saying why they're letting women in and what they're offering the women. Um, so when she gets to school, which is you know a little bit after that, and she she to be a teacher, she's already immersed in um, energy of women's rights, that women have a voice, that they're not just to be, I mean, today we would say barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, but they're not, um, women are much more valuable, you know, in our society and caring for us than just in the home as a mother. And she even in um, uh, talks about when she was little, and would read books, you know, and people would say, now those books are for boys. And she, I could imagine her rolling her eyes mm-hmm. because she, she says, she goes, I don't know why they say they're just for boys because they're really good. And she would just go read them in secret. Um, so even little, she's, she recognizes there's more and seeking it and, and curious and going after it. And so by the time she leaves Ohio, um, you know, she heads to a, um, Clinton, Missouri, and she's teaching, and she's um, teaching um, uh, former slaves and um, people that and and in an energy of freedom and giving rights. And then she goes to Colorado, um, you know, and spends time in Colorado. And Colorado has already given the the right to vote for women um, before 1920. And then Kansas does it long before 1920. And then Missouri does it a year and a half before August of 1920 when the U.S. government does it. So she's she's sort of jetting around, lack of a better term, being in places where the energy of women having rights is really coming to life and really... That's interesting. So help me get the chronology. She was born in 1845. Right. And so Oberlin was already letting women into college then. Do you remember what they said about why they were doing it? Yes. Um, they said uh, – hold on one second. Um, oops. They said the grand objects of Oberlin Institution – this is why they were letting women in. Um, so the grand objects of the Oberlin Institute are to give the most useful education at the least expense of health, time, and money, and to extend the benefits of such an education to both sexes and all classes of the community as far as its means will allow. Um, uh, she got there right after the Civil War? Uh, she was born in 45, so 60. Yes, because okay. yep, she was 21 when she went. I didn't know she was teaching former slaves. Right. Because Missouri was a slave state. Former slave state, yeah. So, so she came to Clinton, Missouri? Yep, which is south of Kansas City, mm-hmm. um, rural area. Um. She, so they said in the statement, while care will be taken not to lower the standard of intellectual culture, um, no pains will be spared to combine with it the best physical and moral education. Um, and the elevation of the female character by bringing within the reach of the misjudged and neglected sex all the instructive privileges which hitherto have unreasonably distinguished the leading sex from theirs. The leading sex. Yes, un- but unreasonably mm-hmm. distinguished them. So that's their that's their statement in 1834. Actually, Oberlin College says this is why this is what we're doing for the women's college uh-huh. and why we're letting women and blacks into college. So it sounds like some of it Myrtle was born with, and then some of it she sought out, and also just by virtue of 
where and when she was born was getting a bigger dose of it than women in other places. Yeah, and I think had she been back east, it would have been who knows, what, mm-hmm. you know, how much bigger uh, an impact she would have had. But um, she certainly was on fertile ground here. Uh, in Missouri, um, Kansas, right next door, going to Texas. I'm not as familiar with with women's movement in Texas, but they weren't there long. They went to Colorado. Charles is doing his real estate entrepreneurial thing. But there's all this energy going on mm-hmm. um, around um, women, and and the women's movement would doesn't didn't look the same as how we would define it today. Um, it's almost. Um, um, like we kind of take it, I think, a little bit for granted. Like it's really hard to imagine what would that mean or look like or feel like to try to get the vote because we have it and we've had it for so long. And um, and or to be in a system where if I steal something, I can be as a woman, I can be charged and convicted and I can go to prison. Right. I can. There's all these things that that I c- that the system will put on top of me, right, and and but I'm not allowed to vote for the system. Or borrow money or right. all the or other things. Right, or borrow money or own property right. or, you know, not have a husband or, yeah, but I can't vote for that. So it's mm-hmm. I, it's hard sometimes for me to imagine that huge disconnect. Mm-hmm. So was she out marching with the suffragettes? Not that I have discovered, not out marching with suffragettes, but she certainly was connecting with um, women. Um, within Kansas City and and um, the role that women play. Um, so when I say the women's movement, it would be for me her her role wouldn't be necessarily around specific issues of um, say like like now our our you know they would have been fighting for just to be noticed right that like we are equally human and now we are you know and and yes while that's still you know, part of a conversation and part of consciousness, it's evolved into things like equal pay. You know, like we're still working to have the same, earn the same amount of income. Um, but it, it would have, I find, I don't find evidence where Martel marched, but being in Kansas City at the, you know, the turn of the century, um, uh, uh, and for, you know, while, when the 19th Amendment passes, I don't doubt that she would have been around people that were. Um, so, but she does get herself involved in, um, uh, like the temperance movement. Um, she does get involved with, um, you know, teaching women how to raise their children, um, and she does, you know, in not just in her what she writes to women, but her conversations. So Charles is, you know, they're having like Wednesday night services, say, you know, down in Kansas City at the original Unity location, um, and she's having conversations, and she's talking with people. And so while she's not, so like the temperance movement, for instance, she's not so much standing up at front, you know, with a with a sign and protesting. Or but an axe. Or an axe, yeah. <laughs> but she'll be in a conversation with someone about how you – you know, in your role as a woman, like how to use your role. It's almost like t- today, how to use your role as a woman to subvert the system. And and I say subvert the system. I don't mean in a, you know, sneaky kind of way, but how, but like a back door, mm-hmm. right? I can't go in the front door. So how do I come in the back door? And, mm-hmm. and it's not, um, it's not unlike today. You know, how do I, how do I, you know, be, get around conventional wisdom in order to, for the, 
for the greater good. So she, she'll have conversations like the temperance movement. For instance. She goes to a meeting where, you know, there's people trying to save all these alcoholic men and, and everything. And, um, and she's, she doesn't, you know, in, in one conversation she writes about, she doesn't tell the woman that you need to do this and this and this for the, for this, for these alcoholic men. She, um, she just kind of comes in a back door, like almost like that Dr. Phil. So how's that working for you? You know, and the woman's like, it's not. They keep mm-hmm. coming back and they're drunk. And she's like, well, what if I, you know, could offer a way to for some healing that isn't it's not coming straight out and saying stop drinking, you know, mm-hmm. um, but rather the healing using healing as an avenue for what ails us in terms of, you know, uh, alcoholism, the temperance movement in terms of your role as a woman. Um, in one letter that a woman writes her from who's in a hospital and has been in the hospital for a few years and the woman is, um, her husband comes to visit her repeatedly, you know, as she's in, the, at the time it was a san- called a sanitarium. But this one letter, the woman goes on for about 15 pages explaining all that ails her and all these healing experiences she has. And for 15 pages, she keeps telling Myrtle, she has this really uncomfortable question to ask Myrtle, and finally, on page 15, she gets to her question, which is, my husband is going to, I'm paraphrasing it, um, but the question is, my husband's coming to visit and he's going to want to sleep with me and I don't want to sleep with him. Oh, wow. Right. So, which to me, when I read that, I'm like, this is, you know, this is a conversation that women have today, mm-hmm. right? For whatever reason, she doesn't want to, you know, she's not feeling in a place of, uh, I don't want to for whatever reason, I don't want to sleep with him, but he's going to come. And, you know, that's his, that's my duty, right, is to yeah. sleep with him. I'm his wife. He, that's his right. Mm. Um, so her response People is... People didn't talk about that. No wonder no. it took 15 pages yes. to get to the point. <laughs> right. Yes. So her response is, she doesn't say, well, you're the wife, that's your duty, you're supposed to. She um, invites her into looking at it like, you know, where her discomfort is. And, you know, um, and she doesn't come right out and say, well, you need to have a conversation with your husband, you know, because again, in the role, you know, in 80 years ago, that's 100 years ago, that would not be the conversation. That would not be the recommendation. But what she does is she affirms that the woman has the capacity to, to make the decision for her own well-being, body, mind, and spirit. And so that decision may be to say to your husband, no. Um, but so she does this. So for me, that converse, that little conversation on paper is is supporting a woman's movement, like a woman's right to say no. But how do I present that without going so far outside the bounds of our culture and what the context of the times, but still give the woman the permission to say no. Ooh, a woman's right to make decisions for her own body. Yes, yes. I'd love to talk to Myrtle about that today. Yes. She, well, most of her, actually most of her letters are about that, is is your sovereignty over your body. Mm-hmm. Um, but she doesn't, she doesn't, again, you have, you have to look at the context and the times. She's not going to necessarily use that specific language, but she's always encouraging whoever she's writing to, to, you know, talk to the cells of your body and to not allow an outside source to determine for you what you do for your body. Yeah. Um, we have about three minutes, and I wondered if we could digress 
to unity and the 12-step movement. Yeah. Because they overlapped. They, you know, about the same time. Myrtle died, I guess, just before AA was founded in 35? Well, AA actually has its beginnings in 1906 with the Oxford groups. Okay. Um, but And then it evolved. So it began as a Christian, um, actually a Christian ministry, um, but to, to care for alcoholics. And then it, I don't remember, it's 35 or 32, but yeah, when it becomes formal, you know, with, with um, Bill Wilson, Dr. – what's his name? Dr. Bob? Dr. Um, Bob. Yeah. Is the 30s, early to mid-30s. And so um, – People familiar with both have found a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. And so part of it's the time in which they developed, but also that they were like-minded, similar ideas. Yeah. They would – so the – you know, in 12-step, it's – there's a power greater than you, mm-hmm. okay? And so – and that's certainly – so in that conversation I was talking about where the woman – where Myrtle's talking to the woman that's working hard in the temperance movement to cure these alcoholics, right. part of her conversation includes these people have an innate power of their own um, and, you know, this um, uh, inherent connection with God and that's – the power to be used, um, and you can't do this, you know, just on your own in your own little human mind and your own little human body, you know, all by yourself, mm-hmm. which is core to, you know, in twelve step program, you you don't do it alone, you know, you do it alone. It's sort of a death sentence, but also core to unity. The first two principles. Yep, God is all there is, and you're it. You're it. <laughs> I actually look at unity as uh, two principles, three practices. I know. I know. I actually think you're right about that. <laughs> um. Yeah, that there's one presence and one power, and you're it in your limited form of that infinite principle. Mm-hmm. And then here's three practices to bring that all to life. Right. Which is the creative power of your thoughts, prayer, feelings. and prayer. thoughts and feelings. Yes, ma'am. Prayer and meditation. Uh, and you have to put feet on it. Mm-hmm. And I think I think Myrtle really um, brought all of that to life. Um, she um, certainly never, you know, mapped out five principles, but she in every letter she presences the one presence and one power. She gives word to you and your power to bring that principle to life mm-hmm. in your healing and. She said, you have prayer. You have work to do. I can't tell you how many letters I've come across where she says to the person, okay, we've gotten like many prayer requests and we've done this before and we're kind of done now. The same person right yes. over and over. Yes. Yep. Still happens with silent yep. unity. And she says, blesses them on their way. <laughs> okay. We're here with Kelly Isola talking about our co-founder Myrtle Fillmore, learning all kinds of things. So we will be back with more from Voices of Unity after these messages. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. It takes you to power Unity Online Radio. If you'd like to make a positive difference in the world, you can by contributing to this global ministry. 
Unity Online Radio relies on listeners like you to support our broadcasts that send our messages out to an awakening world. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate today. Here's a Unity Wisdom Moment with Eric Butterworth. So we're always into this thing called time. It's very hard to free ourselves from the pressure and the limitations and the boundary lines which time sets down. So that in partial experience, in human consciousness, we have what we call deadlines, which are an abomination in human experience. But in the whole of things, we have only alive lines. We live in eternity, and time is always now. In the eternal of you, there is a completed whole, there's a finished kingdom. And all that you do and seek to do is always complete in infinite mind. And as we say, it can be done in a twinkling of a second, or it can be done in hours, it can be done in days, or we can stew and fret about it all of our lives. In God, it is now done. To hear more talks from Eric Butterworth, visit truthunity.net. Follow UnityOnlineRadio.org on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and stay up to date with everything Unity. Become a fan by clicking the like button. You can join in with a Facebook Live event or just like and share our inspirational messages and posts. Be the first to find out about any big special guests on the radio, giveaways, or events at Unity Village. Make sure you leave any questions or comments about Unity programming. We want to hear from you. Did you know you can reach Unity's 24-7 prayer ministry online? You don't even have to give your name to know the prayers have begun for you or those you love. Someone has been praying around the clock at Silent Unity since 1890, and every request is taken into prayer for 30 days. Why not let us pray with you, too? To submit your prayer request to Silent Unity online, go to unity.org and click on prayer or call 816-969-2000. Would you like to experience more peace and joy in your life through A Course in Miracles? Let Reverend Jennifer Hadley support you in discovering the powerful life lessons available through this unique spiritual thought system that teaches the way to love and peace is through forgiveness. Join Jennifer every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for A Course in Miracles, Living the Love, Walking the Talk, to experience the healing for yourself on Unity Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Voices of Unity with Reverend Ellen Devenport. We are back with Voices of Unity. I'm Ellen Devonport here with Reverend Kelly Isola. Kelly has done lots of work and research about Myrtle Fillmore, the published and unpublished writings that we have from her, mostly letters that she wrote to people who had written to her asking for help. And as we were just saying before the break, some of them wrote over and over and over with the same problem, and Myrtle would eventually call them on it. They didn't get to run their story forever. Nope. And... She says she's very clear. Um, I've come across it multiple times that she says um, uh, without, you know, she's fairly direct, but um, almost the the energy of, yeah, we're done because you're, you know, 
and she doesn't she's it I don't get a sense of her being upset. Mm-hmm. I don't get a sense of her being like, Oh my gosh, are you not listening? You know, I don't really get a sense of that. I get a sense of we've told you how this works mm-hmm. and you don't seem to either understand or listen or want to be willing to practice but she always puts it back like you have work to do Mm -hmm. like you can write to us till the cows come home and we'll hold this in prayer but unless and until you do your work nothing will change there's one of the letters in the a published book um how to let god help you i think where she's saying to someone um oh yeah exactly that you have work to do she says something like, we can't magically cure your brother. Right. I think is what the woman was writing about. Yes. He's, the, the writer is asking for prayers for self and brother. Mm-hmm. And she says um, – she actually says we are not so concerned about results. We don't, we don't really care about the results here at um, – uh, but the change – the shift in consciousness that will make the results abiding. Mm-hmm. And so what's interesting about that statement is that you can go – the results that are abiding in consciousness can go in many different directions. Mm-hmm. And so um, – but she, she tells the person that, um, that, that you, you also have work to do. Like we're happy to pray and if you – it doesn't – nothing we do will really impact much because you have work to do. Yeah. You have to pray. You have to be doing what we're telling you. You have to be – Um, So that you have a shift in consciousness that will make whatever results you're seeking abiding. And I actually use that that one piece uh, from the book when teaching with people about uh, about Myrtle Fillmore and prayer and we'll probably jump into another another one of the other episodes. But, you know, was she believing in in outcome or was she believing in process? Interesting. Yeah. Okay, we have a whole week or so scheduled on healing. Yep. Myrtle's healing story, what she taught about healing, as well as some of her spiritual practices. We'll have a kind of experience, as experiential as you can be on the radio. Yes. Uh, we'll have a show about that. I have always been so grateful that, as far as I know, allowing women to study spiritual principles and ordaining them was never an issue in unity. And I assume it was because unity was founded by a couple. But the more I hear, the more remarkable that is, that they presented themselves as a couple. They were very clear they were doing this together. They both signed off on their covenant with God. It's not something she turned over to him to be the face of. No. Uh, just because he was the man. No. And good, so good for both of them. Mm-hmm. Well, and they were um, – uh, I think some of that comes back to uh, her being nine years his senior, mm-hmm. and his his. It I think it 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 speaks to his his own upbringing. You know, being raised on um, a reservation in Minnesota. You know, divorced parents, um, his mom and just his brother, and um, no faith tradition practices. But being on a reservation, he would have been exposed to lots of things different than what Myrtle. Would have as a Methodist as Episcopalian, a Methodist kid, yeah, yeah. Um, and not just you know, but a, a mother, Myrtle's mother, was very devoted, you know, and um, so radically different, you know, coming together. And I, I just think he would have him being nine years younger than her, and and she's thirty six, 
you know, she had reached a place where at that time it's like, I'm just going to be, I'm not getting married having kids. But then all of a sudden, so I, it, for me, it, it kind of makes perfect sense that, um, the two of them would found, you know, would start what they did because they had different skill sets, different energies, different focus. Um, you know, he's doing the entrepreneurial thing and she's, um, it's almost like an external internal, you know, like and and trading places. So mm-hmm. there's masculine, feminine energy that shows up differently. There's an internal and external, you know, focus. Like some of the external is if you're an entrepreneur, you got to find a place to do business, right? You need to earn income. Right. And then the internal focus on, on healing body, healing mind, and so that you have some measure of success in the external. And I just think they complement each other in so many ways that if you actually sat down and started sort of mapping mm-hmm. they're 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 in some ways a giant paradox that that are wholly interdependent and I that, wish you would do that okay draw that map okay yeah it just came to my mind so I said it out loud okay so that probably means I should probably do that I've been thinking you should write more about this for a long time I know I know I don't know why there's always I'm always I'm always I love the research so I get you know sucked into oh my gosh this is so cool you know so yes yeah I think a lot of us in unity want to just keep learning yes rather than do anything with it just I'll read another book about that right or I'll get another degree yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm one of those so it sounds as if the Fillmores were literally pioneers in the United States on stagecoach, you know, but also pioneers in the religious world and pioneers in consciousness, mm-hmm. just just out there on the cutting edge of all of that. Mm-hmm. But they weren't alone. They have there's a lot of people who influenced them, and there were lots of other women, weren't there? Yes, who were so talk about that. Well, their teachers would have been, uh, you know, Emma Curtis Hopkins. Mary Baker Eddy, you know the the founders of uh, Christian Science and um, and the New Thought movement. Um, many names that we don't often hear, you know Annie Ricks Millets, um, who was you know had eventually uh, in in the beginnings for the Fillmore, she moved out west to to California, um, and Nona Brooks, Divine Science, and there's just all kinds of women that we just don't hear about that. Um, Hold on, I was trying to pull up some of their names that that are um, just influence them. That we even have their ordination papers, right? Of um, Charles is his ordination with the you know Emma Curtis Hopkins and Charles. I think signs myrtles. Um, and I remember when I came across it, I'm like, oh, you're such a man. <laughs> it's to sign myrtles ordination, and they have like several. There's like several ordination, um, but so. Uh, they there are multiple women. Um, Emily Cady, who wrote Lessons in Truth, mm-hmm. you know, a physician, um, and Lessons in Truth is eighteen ninety six. So, um, and and she writes that well into her career. So here's another woman that is um, a physician. You know, so she's doing work in a man's world, and she's writing. You know, all of this this spiritual and philosophical material, um, and they would have read a lot of philosophy. Um, but the um, 
being impacted by the transcendentalist, which were, you know, Emerson and Thoreau, but then here's these women come along that are putting it into action and expanding it into, okay, what does this mean, like, practically? You know, I think I might get in trouble for this, but I think at times women are a little more practical mm-hmm. than men. Um, and so I think all of these women that were the, you know, the founders for New Thought and really driving the boat and moving it west were how do I take these philosophical ideas that are floating around, that are being written about by men, you know, and um, and make them practical down here, you know, in, in our world here to to make our world a better place. Which is why unity has always built itself as practical Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, these ideas are great. How do you use them in your life? And that's the conversation we're still having all the time. Yes. Um, and I don't, I don't, it's not always an easy answer. Um, I think there's a lot of things that are sound like, well, that's a good theory, you know, but to put it into practice. Um, and what I mean by that is that I can look back at, say, Charles or Myrtle, or we'll just stick with Myrtle, and, and putting something into practical application, um, you know, a principle, a belief, um, that not all of them panned out, first of all. Like, I think sometimes we forget that. And um, the ones that did, it, it wasn't necessarily an overnight thing. Like, it's something you keep doing. And we have this allergy and unity towards, like, discipline. Um, we have, you know, and practice or, Mm -hmm. uh, this past Sunday I was, you know, um, in the middle of the talk, I I like to invite people to ask questions and comment and I like it to be a conversation, a Sunday talk. And, um, so I asked, what's the beauty of unity? That was, I was doing a truth, goodness, and beauty, those Plato's three virtues. And I said, so what's beautiful? And one woman piped up and said, there's no rules. And I said, and I looked at her and I smiled and I said, perhaps I said, but I have rules. Like prayer and meditation is not negotiable. Mm-hmm. It's a discipline. and But we sometimes have allergies to that in unity. And so making it practical also brings with it, well, you have to do it. Um, you can make it practical, but if you're not, you know, practically applying it and demonstrating it, it's just a good theory. Which is what Myrtle was saying over and over in her letters. Right. And why she blesses many people. Okay, best of luck. You know, <laughs> right when you get work. Um, doesn't mean we're going to stop doing what we're doing. But you, if you're not willing to do the work, because what happens is, is we do the work and everything unlike the healing comes up. It's called, the old word is called chemicalization. Mm-hmm. And who wants to experience that? Right. Not me. And I think the women's movement is, and now we have the same thing in terms of, you know, white privilege, is it's chemicalization. It's what's coming to surface that needs to be, you know, needs that needs healing, that needs an enormous amount of work and needs to be addressed. And I think at the time, um, you know, in Myrtle's time and when she was active, there's the women's movement, you know, while it got started in much earlier than you know, back in the uh, 1830s, 1840s and kept moving. But when she comes along and gets busy with unity and and building this prayer ministry that wasn't really like she set out to build a prayer ministry, is there's all this chemicalization that's going on and why I think she just really gets inundated with letters pretty quickly and it grows so quickly because there's all this change going on within our country in terms of um, 
rights, civil rights and human rights and freedoms and just changing culture. You know, we I think we talk right now about, you know, there's never been so much change in our culture or society than now. I'm like, yeah, I think every generation says that. Mm-hmm, right. Um, and hers would have been no different. Mm-hmm. So how do we respond to that? Because I think some of the letters when people are writing in with their ailments and what's going on is – is you know the the ailments and the the physical discomfort and illnesses and everything is a result of is in part informed by what's going on around us like mm-hmm. life conditions in, you know inform consciousness consciousness informs life conditions and so she's she's responding to the life conditions to shift consciousness so that consciousness will shift life conditions are you aware that she ever had chemicalization and for those not familiar with the term, basically, you may have noticed that when you start down a new spiritual path, all hell breaks loose in your life. And did that happen to Myrtle? I'm not um, aware of it. She came in sick. Yes. And um, she does talk about um, her own um, wanting to heal herself of harsh words and unkind thoughts. Um, and frustrations and being an impatient person and and periodically you see her um, uh, reference the um, being an impatient person mm-hmm. um, certainly got a whole lot better over time mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't like it was gone altogether um, but by the time she died she was you know generally in there's a, a little article that was um, about her last couple days at work and that she always went into silent unity and always made the rounds and always smiled at people and brought sunshine and goodness and um, being uh, still having moments of being an impatient person. Mm-hmm. And I happen to believe that some of those letters I reference that where, she's, where she says that you have to do this too, like we just can't be the only ones praying, I happen to think that – well, I, you know, I said I don't think she was annoyed and angry and frustrated, but I think there are moments of – some impatience that that may be in there, not because they're not listening, but I think impatience because she knows there's a way for you to have for your health and well-being to be much improved, for you to have happiness, for you to have a life beyond what you have right now. This disease and discomfort. Um, so I, uh, I don't even remember we, we where see, we started. We see that in Jesus too, though. You guys just aren't getting it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, and they weren't perfect. Mm-hmm. Jesus, you know, Jesus had it off days. <laughs> okay, that's another show. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk for a minute about Unity's relationship to Christian science mm-hmm. because the Fillmore's studied Christian science when it was a generic spiritual term. It was not its own denomination. Uh, Christian science was what? The study of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles writes about scientific prayer. Mm-hmm. And he loved the mechanics of how uh, – the mechanics of metaphysics, maybe. He loved to find out how this stuff works and how you can use it, this power in the universe. Well, she she refers to it as uh, – uh, she equates it to mathematics, mm-hmm. you know, mathematical equations. And she actually um, oftentimes changes the name from Christian science to spiritual science, mm-hmm. um, which – I'm I'm never quite sure why she does that. Um, sometimes I think she does it um, because it's closer to it's closer to I think what people were experiencing that 
Christian wasn't necessarily always the hot issue, and that I think sometimes saying Christian science can pigeonhole that it went from, like you said, from just a general term to something now, this small slice. Right, and a specific denomination. And my understanding is Mary Baker Eddy uh, made it very clear to people that was her brand and they yes. were not to use that term. Right. So um, so they still um, – it still got used, um, but you can see in, in when Myrtle writes um, – I don't recall – Charles rarely calls it anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Myrtle that, that um, uses the term Christian science or spiritual science. Um, but she equates it to um, to math, to mathematics, um, that there's – she says there's three essentials to the success in the study of mathematics and therefore there's three essentials to the success in the study of Christian science or spiritual science. And she – so she maps it out. These are the things where it lives – yeah, she's not just hard. She's pretty head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, there is a science to it, and and I and just like science um, evolves, um, I think when you read enough of Charles and you read enough of Myrtle and you read it chronologically, you sort of see an evolution, you know, a shift in um, in practical application or a shift in the results or a shift in thought mm-hmm. or a shift in how you interpret something scientific. So let's talk about what it, what Myrtle said about a woman's role. Did she have a strictly divided sense of what men do and what women do? Um, I I don't think I would not 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 that I've seen. Okay. Um, I think if I was to interpret what I've read, that there are if you're going to have if you have a certain amount of energy and time. And whatever is going on in your world, how do you want to spend your energy and what do you want to do with it? So she um, – in in the book, How to Let God Help You, there's a chapter in there that's called The Gospel of Uses. And what it is – what it's all about is she's really talking about um, how um, the home is is really a primary place to start. And so when you first read it and you you put your 21st century eyeballs and you read that chapter, it sounds like she's it can you can interpret it as though oh women are supposed to be in the home and they're supposed to be and that's mm-hmm. not really what she's saying if you put it in the context of when she wrote it and what's going on in her world, she's inviting you back to um to where you can make your biggest impact. And where you can do your most good, you know, with your family. The irony is that what we're seeing in Christianity and we're seeing in churches right now in 2019 is that um, spirituality is moving back to the household. Mm-hmm. Spiritual practice, um, religion is moving. So churches, the buildings, you know, are um, kind of, you know, drifting away and, and church and its you know, current form is about 400 years old, and that's all shifting and changing and, and dying away and new is coming. But the thing that's really emerging and floating to the top is what's called household spirituality, and that all of this work around whether you want to call it, you know, religion or no religion, and doesn't matter if you're atheist or Muslim or Christian, but it's going on in the home. Um, and so I find it just amazingly ironic 
or maybe that's not the right word, but amazingly wonderful that it's like this full circle thing because she comes, when you read that, it's chapter 31 and How to Let God Help You, the the gospel of uses is she's telling you, um, and it's pretty much, it's mostly directed at women because at the time, that's where... That's where women mostly were, was Mm -hmm. in the home. So it's like using your, just like today, for there to be a shift in white privilege, to deconstruct a white privilege system, you need a white person like me, part of the equation. Because to use my power, to use my privilege, to deconstruct. And what I, how I hear what she writes some of these things for women and what they can be doing, like the woman with the temperance movement, is use the position you have the low-hanging fruit mm-hmm. right in front of you to to make a difference to to raise children in a with in a different way of thinking right mm-hmm. raise children to to not be a you know to not just go with the flow and to raise children to think for themselves and to raise children to um to question to be curious right and not necessarily just because someone said so and it's not like she didn't have any rules or you know or or discipline in children but she um you know we we all, most a lot of us love the story of you know when they built the house here in unity village there was no kitchen you know and myrtle says to charles well go next door and your mother will cook you mm-hmm. food mm-hmm. but i'm not going to i love that and that's a day when there wasn't takeout and no his mother cooked all their meals yep his mother was very much in the picture the whole time. Yes. Uh, yeah. There's a chapter in one of the books where she talks about having been terribly strict with her boys until she started this spiritual path. Mm-hmm. And she writes about letting them play in puddles in the rain. And with the image she gives is that the neighbor children just have their noses pressed against the glass from inside, wishing... They could be out having fun like that. Yep. And her boys equate that with her spiritual understanding. The other thing I've noticed is that when people ask her about marriage, she writes about parenthood. Yeah. It's very little about having a husband or how that works. Yeah, I wouldn't say she's um, – no, you don't hear much about you know romance, Mm-mm. so to speak. However – that being said, I do think there was a romantic or, for lack of a better word, a sensual side to Myrtle that came out in poetry, that came out in hymns that she wrote. Mm-hmm. There are things that I've read. I've always referred to them as sort of have a Rumi-esque kind of quality to them mm-hmm. um, that have an, maybe a little esoteric or etheric feel that I, I think that's that would be a place for that, you know, that creative or romantic side, you know, romantic in quotations. Um, that's where I see it show up. It's certainly, you know, any conversations. He's, I haven't read anything that's really very personal, you know, about her and Charles. Um, but she, you know, except she does kind of joke about how he just chased her around and he knew from the beginning that she was the one. And so she, she sort of dangled a carrot and he followed her, and that, those are my words. You know, translating <laughs> how she writes it. Um, um, but um, yeah, that he that he was um, that Charles was just he was knew she was the one, and so followed her, and it was kind of a no brainer. And she she reached a point where she um, I don't think she you know she talks about being thirty six, and that was you know long 
kind of old at the time to be mm-hmm. getting married and having children, but she did want them and said, well, okay. Yeah. I like him. He's good. He's. It, uh, it was a great match. I think so. At least for history and the spiritual movement. So Absolutely. I'm, I'm trying to think how to wrap this up. So when we talk about Myrtle and the women's movement, it's not that she was out marching in the streets carrying a sign. Not that I know of. But she certainly saw women as fully equal humans and partners and encouraged them to think of themselves that way. Kind of called them out. Yeah. I mean, in, in her responses to their prayer requests yes. is where you see it most often. And that each of them was equipped with a spiritual nature, mm-hmm. a divine identity, and and that the position they were in was not necessarily oppressed. Mm-mm. She wasn't saying, yeah, you're just a wife and mother. You have to stay home all the time, and isn't that a shame? She was saying, no, that's where you can really have an effect. Yeah, and and if you think of yourself as oppressed or if you think of yourself as a second-class citizen, then you have some healing work to do. Because mm-hmm. wow. we're all created in the image and likeness, right? There wasn't space. In her. I don't think there was space in her to, like she may have heard someone make those kind of comments, but there wasn't any. She was kind of be like, yeah, whatever, moving on. Like, I got to pay attention over here. Right. I think that would have sounded like self-pity to her. Yeah. And um, and it, it lacked discipline. Oh, gosh. I know. Discipline. A disciplined mind. Not popular in unity. No, it's not. And yet that's... <laughs> she does talk about it a lot. Yes, yeah, she does. Eat right, exercise, get fresh air. It's where the healing is. Mm-hmm. And I think healing is our topic for next week. She wrote a lot about it. She had her own personal story about it. So we'll be back next week with Reverend... Threefold healing. Yeah, yeah. Reverend Kelly Isola on Voices of Unity. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.